Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. So I have a confession to make here. (laughs) I had every intent at the beginning of the week to get through verse 7 today. And in reality, I'm not going to get out of verse 1. So um, I, I just don't know how to jump over things that I think are significant and potentially helpful to those that would hear this message either today or someday in the future. And so as we look at this, the 14th part of Genesis so far, and we'll look at verse 1 today, we'll read this section in its entirety, and then we'll come back to this next week and revisit very, very briefly. Some of these things we have kind of mentioned and glossed over, other things are introduced to us here that need to be addressed, and so prayerfully we will get through this in a... um, in a productive way. So creation is complete. God has spoken into existence a magnificent world that is filled with immense beauty. It's not lost on us that God spoke these things into being. His declaration at the end of chapter 1, which is the summary of creation, is that it was very good, and I believe that that is a gross misunderstatement, uh, gross understatement, rather, was perfect. It was perfectly reflected. His power, His majesty, His glory. But more than that, God, what God created encapsulated His divine purpose to create a place for mankind that would enable us to marvel at His power, to be in awe of the majesty that is in Him, to understand and recognize His glory, and then to enjoy Him His divine purpose, enjoy Him, knowing Him, worshiping Him, and living life in view of the great God that He is. That was God's purpose in creating mankind to enjoy who He is and what He has done. It wasn't enough that God had created this incredible world for mankind to live in, but He also carved out for the first man and woman a little garden, protected, secluded, for them to live in and to care for and then to have fellowship with Him in the cool of the evening as we will see in the days ahead. Adam and Eve lived in a true paradise, a world a world, and existence beyond our imagination and far beyond our understanding. And in an instant, it all changed. Just like that, everything has changed. One commentator has said, Genesis 3 is one of the most vitally important chapters in all the Bible. It is the foundation of everything that comes after it. Without it, little else in Scripture or in life itself would make sense. Genesis 3 explains the condition of the universe and the state of humanity. It explains why the world has so many problems. It explains the human dilemma. It explains why we need a Savior. And it explains what God is doing in history. Genesis is filled with evidence of humanity's rapid downward spiral into utter moral degradation, end quote. Think about it. God has created this magnificent existence for Adam and Eve to live in, and in an instant everything changed. It went down so fast that it's almost incomprehensible and how quickly things went off the rail. For in fact, in Genesis 4, 
we have the the recording of the first murder where Cain murders his brother Abel. A little bit later, there's the first mention of polygamy. A little bit later in chapter 4, there's another murder. From there, the human race declines so significantly that by Genesis 6-5, God says... It says then that the Lord saw the wickedness of the man was was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you believe that's hyperbole? Do you believe that God was overstating something? As we continue to look through Genesis, it also records the beginnings of such evils as homosexuality in chapter 19, of incest also in chapter 19, as idolatry in chapter 31, of rape in chapter 34, of mass murder also in chapter 34, of prostitution in chapter 38, and many other forms of wickedness. Genesis 3, 1-7 simply explains why the world is in such disorder and why sin and evil permeate every corner of the globe. Without exception, every corner of the globe is saturated with the reality of sin and evil. Somehow, the sin of Adam has defiled the entirety of humanity, and now every one of his natural offspring has inherited a love for sin and a contempt for true righteousness. Oh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not true. No, it is true. Every human prior to their salvation, has inherited a love for salvation and a contempt for righteousness. And even after our salvation, we are instructed to die to ourselves, to die to those natural desires, to submit ourselves before the Lordship of Christ. Why? Because we, moment by moment, day by day, resist His authority in our lives. The reality, this reality is simply called the doctrine of original sin. Now, the book of Genesis does not deal with this directly as the Apostle Paul does. The Old Testament mentions it, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But, for example, Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. I remember in college I went to a Baptist university that was allegedly conservative, and the most conservative professor that I had in the religion department dismissed the doctrine of original sin as simply philosophical fodder. How do you disregard the doctrine of original sin when it is so clearly taught throughout the Bible? Because of the sin of Adam, we have inherited a sinful nature, not only a propensity towards sin and evil, but a total depravity that resists that which is right and instead craves that which is wrong. You know, uh, Rachel's little boy, my little granddaughter, separated by just a couple of weeks, just bundles of love and, and innocence, and yet it's going to show up very, very quickly of just how sinful they really are. And it's not because of the parents. It's just the virtue of the doctrine of original sin. 
This resistance to true righteousness is also fleshed out by Paul in the book of Romans. And he says in 8, 7, and 8, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that is us prior to our salvation and post-salvation. We fight this natural desire to be in the flesh by choosing to put on the new man created in the image of Christ. Paul would declare that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And so quoting from a collection of Psalms, Paul would say these words in Romans chapter 3, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps or serpents is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All of this began very, very quickly after the creative work of God was completed. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, this sinful nature overtook them and began to define the fabric of their lives. This is why the world is in need of a Savior. This is why the Father sent Jesus the Son to provide salvation. Now, as we look at verses 1 through 7 and focus just on the very first part of 1, it introduces us to a myriad of questions, issues, subjects that are very, very difficult to flesh out, but they need to be touched on and addressed at least a little bit for us to understand the narrative that is to follow and then the result of the fall of Adam and Eve. So let's read together Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7 to keep this section connected together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What a tragic summary of what took place on the heels of being placed in this lush, beautiful garden filled with the presence of God, evidenced by His glory and power and wisdom. The man and woman who were joined together and were naked and not ashamed are now aware of their nakedness and very quickly so for themselves loin coverings. 
So we're introduced here to the fall of man as we continue to go through our outline. And so the reading of these verses very quickly elicits numerous questions, some of which are just not answers for. The Bible doesn't speak to them directly. There's a lot of speculation that relate to trying to answer these questions. What cannot be known, for example, is how long after creation was completed did this event in Genesis 3 take place? Was it days? Was it weeks? Was it months? When we left chapter 2, the joining together of Adam and Eve, their wedding, if you will, the completion of creation summarized in chapter 1 where God says, be fruitful and multiply. So God has blessed them and it's very likely that their expulsion from the garden following their sin was not nine months away, assuming they were fruitful and multiplied, because there's no mention of them, of Eve getting, giving birth until later in chapter four, where very quickly after that there is the first murder. So there's no way to know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before they chose to disregard the only command that God had given to them and were then expelled. So there's many questions that we're going to look at now as we are introduced to number one in our outline, and that is the adversary. Verse 1a, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So without the rest of Scripture, the reader would say, what is this serpent and where did he come from and how can he talk and how did he get into the garden and why is Eve not afraid of the serpent and on and on and on the questions go. And there's just not answers for all of these questions. I did not want to gloss over these questions because I think that probably some of you have questions and because Scripture doesn't directly address all of these questions, I think trying to flesh out some of them will at least help us to put an idea behind what isn't stated obviously in the Genesis narrative that can be supplied from the rest of Scripture. Now the rest of Scripture will tell us who this serpent really is. We know that it is Satan. It is the adversary of God. The serpent is an animal, as an animal, is a part of God's creation. All of which is still good. Right? So all of the beasts of the field were created on day six. God declared it very good, had the day of rest, goes into chapter two, which restates in detail some of the events that took place on day six of creation. So here they are enjoying the garden that God has made for them. And here comes the serpent that we know to be Satan himself. All of this is good. So she doesn't seem to be surprised by or even afraid of the serpent that now appears out of nowhere in the garden. Now, if you were out in your little backyard garden and you saw a snake approaching you, what would be your initial reaction? Would you scream? Would you run? Would you grab a shovel and start to beat it? Would you ask, where did this come from? Would you say, are there others? There's no indication of what Eve's Feelings were what her mental state might have been, but she doesn't seem to be surprised by or even afraid of this serpent that has appeared to her. Neither does she appear to be alarmed at why it can talk 
why she hears what she understands as words coming from the serpent. I don't know about you, but I would be going, now wait a minute. I've seen a lot of animals in my day, but I've never heard one move its mouth and out come words that I can hear and understand. She doesn't seem to be surprised by that at all, and we don't know why. We don't know why it isn't alarming, surprising. We don't know why she hasn't run. But the serpent appears. We know it is Satan. It's speaking to her, and she can hear these things coming from its mouth. So the serpent is described here as being more crafty than any other animal God had made. Now this is a very subtle nuance tucked into this description. Crafty does not mean evil. We would think it means evil, but actually the word has the idea of being wary of and knowing when danger is lurking. It can be understood both positively and negatively. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, we are instructed to positively be wary of, be crafty in regards to evil. It is also negatively used where those who are leading us to, uh, leading us astray are crafty or are shrewd. But we know this is no ordinary serpent. Therefore, his being described as crafty causes the reader to consider his words very, very carefully. Now, Eve doesn't seem to be concerned about what it is she's hearing. She sees this serpent, she hears it speaking, and she's going to entertain a conversation with it in just a matter of time. So since this is Satan, it opens up the door to even more questions. Where did he come from? Why is he tempting Eve to sin? How did he get into the garden? Why is he in the garden? Why did God allow him into the garden? And on and on and on the questions would go. Well, Genesis doesn't attempt to explain the origin of of evil, but only the origin of human sin and guilt. So there's a lot in regards to Satan that is not dealt with in the book of Genesis. It's not dealt with in this narrative about the fall of man, but Scripture does fill in for us what Genesis does not. So what I've done in your outline is there's going to be a bunch of Scripture verses coming, as you can see, and I've just tried to categorize what these verses speak to, although you may not hear me say those words as a part of the outline. So if in your own study later on you want to try to read these verses and study them and look at them and go to your concordance and look at other references. You can do that under the categories, but you won't hear me say these category headings that are put in there only to separate the verses out of one long section. So the Bible doesn't tell us when angels were created, but we know that they are created. For example, in Genesis 2.1, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Hosts is a summarization here of the created angelic beings often referred to as the heavenly host. We see them appear announcing the birth of Christ to the shepherds and the heavenly host. We see that they are referenced many times in the book of Revelation where there are a host of angels who are singing and worshiping. So only God is eternal and we know that all things are created except for God who has always been. Angels are not eternal. They are immortal. 
But they were created at some point in the creation narrative, although the Bible nowhere tells us exactly when they were created. But, based upon Job 38, the angels witnessed the creation of the earth. So that means that they were created at some point before man was created, but they were not created before the earth, excuse me, but they were created sometime before the earth. So, in Job 38, the angels witness the creation of the earth, and in this passage, God is challenging Job's finite understanding. And so we read these words out of Job. God speaking says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it, on what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So God is asking Job these questions about the foundation of the earth being established. And when he does so, he says, The morning stars often referred to as angels in the Old Testament, or the sons of God, also referring to the angels, these angelic beings shouted for joy when God invisibly created the earth and set it in place, caused it to spin, defined its boundaries, the angelic host shouted for joy. So they were created when the earth was put into place, but we don't know precisely when they were. So again, the sons of God are a reference to the angels, and when they saw the earth created, they shouted for joy. We also know that these are angels because of what we read in Job 1, verse 6. At the beginning of this introduction to the life of Job, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So in the book of Job, Satan approaches God, and we will see that he, we would see that he seeks permission to test Job. And when this takes place, it says here, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So this again is a reference to the angelic hosts that were created. So we know what is described in Job 38 is consistent with with what is in Job 31. So they were created before the earth was established, but we don't know exactly when. So we also know that Satan was expelled from heaven for his rebellion against God. Now before we look at this, let's pause for just a second. We don't know when the angels were created, but we know that when the Genesis 3 narrative begins, everything is still in an at-good position on the earth because sin had not yet entered the earth. But, Satan, presenting himself to Eve in the form of a serpent, has already fallen. So sometime after they were created, and the narrative in Genesis 3, Lucifer has rebelled and is then expelled from heaven. Genesis 3 doesn't tell us anything about that. But we learn a little bit about the expulsion of Lucifer and the angelic angelic beings who followed him and were later called demons based upon Ezekiel and Isaiah that we're going to look at. So here's a lengthy passage. This is a lamentation against the king of Tyre, a real king, 
who is a typological parallel, who is a great and powerful king, typological parallel to the great and powerful angel Lucifer that God created. Here's what it says. Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. The beryl, the onks, the, st- the jasper, the lapis, the lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. And the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as a profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you by the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade you profane your sanctuaries therefore I have brought fire from the midst of you it has consumed you and I have turned you to ashes on the earth and the eyes of all who see you all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you you will become terrified and you will cease to be forever so in this typological comparison what God has done to Lucifer he is going to do to the king of Tyre. In the same way that Lucifer was embarrassed within the angelic hosts, the king of Tyre is going to be embarrassed and humiliated among the kings of men and those who witnessed the downfall of this king. So Ezekiel chronicles for us the downfall of Lucifer... So he was the most beautiful of all the angels, and sometime after creation was completed and and the events of Genesis 3 took place, Lucifer rebelled against God and was cast out of the heavenlies. Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. This was the position of Lucifer in the incredible beauty with which God had created him. He tried to elevate himself above his creator. God saw the pride in the sin in his heart, and he threw him out of heaven. This Historic event, Jesus himself affirmed in Luke ten eighteen. He said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. How quickly does the lightning fall from the heavens above down to the earth? It's quick, isn't it? 
I believe that in the quickness with which Adam and Eve fell from the secluded paradise of Eden, Lucifer likely also fell from his prominent position within the angelic host and like lightning was very quickly cast down from his place in heaven. He along with the third of the angels were expelled from heaven as is told to us in Revelation 12.4 and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth he might devour her child. So this is a culmination of what the Bible tells us about Satan that the narrative that we're looking at does not. But it's not the entirety of the narrative about the person of Satan. We also know from the New Testament the work of or the role of Satan as the adversary of God who opposes all things that God stands for including those who would be God's people. We read this in John 8.44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus heard and saw exactly what took place within the heavenly host and why Lucifer was cast out of heaven. He's speaking to the Pharisees about how they are a typological parallel to Lucifer who was cast down. They themselves speak the same lies that Satan himself was guilty of that caused him to be kicked out of heaven, to be kicked out of the heavenly. Luke 22.31 also tells something about the nature and the work of Satan. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. That is the work of our adversary to sift us, to test us, to try us, to compel us to turn away from God and to turn towards Him. We would also read in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is not a mythological beast. He is a real entity, a demon with great power who roams the earth looking to devour those who are not yet set upon following the command of the Lord. We also would read in 2 Corinthians 11.14 For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan has the ability to conceal his true identity. And it's not difficult to imagine him using the body of a serpent to manifest his presence in the garden to tempt her to disobey God. Now when the Old Testament speaks about Lucifer being in the garden, it isn't here as the serpent. It's as the most prized angelic being placed there adorned with the stones that are found there as the cherub who protects. And you know what happens when you have a security guard who you need to be protected from, right? They'll rob you blind. They'll take everything they can. And so Lucifer, the cherub who covers, the cherub who protects, placed in the garden has now fallen and comes in 
in the form of a serpent to carry out the work found in his true nature, his true identity, to seek someone to devour. So it isn't impossible for us to see how he could disguise his true identity, appear in the form of a serpent for the purpose of tempting and testing Eve. Even the holy angels have the ability to mask their true identity. Hebrews 13.2 Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. You've heard that, right? Abraham entertained angels in Genesis 18. Gideon entertained angels in Judges chapter 6. Manoah also entertained angels in chapter 13. Jesus had a ministering angel appear to him when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is one of the primary purposes of the angels. Now I'm going to repeat that one, but I want to read to you what are these three major purposes of the angels. I want you to think about this as it relates to the serpent appearing in the garden and think about three primary roles that angels have. The first one is they are messengers. As seen throughout the Bible, they come to speak the word of the Lord. Right? And here comes the false or the demonic angel now becoming a messenger within the Garden of Eden. Secondly, they are ministering spirits. We see this when Jesus was ministered to by by angels in the Garden of Gethsemane to Elijah when he was fleeing from Jezebel. And so the role of an angel is to come and to minister to and here comes the serpent not to minister to but to pull away from God the life that Eve had known. Three, they are warriors fighting for God's righteousness and justice as seen in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah or in the killing of 185,000 Assyrians in 2 Kings. So they are warriors who fight to preserve righteousness and justness And here comes the serpent to fight for everything that is wrong as the adversary of God. So Satan as a demonic angel is going to give a false message. He will not be ministering to, but will be inflicting misery upon. And his battle is not for righteousness, but for anarchy and evil. This is our adversary. This is the one who has appeared to Eve in the garden who seeks to undo the glory, the majesty of God's creation and will be successful in doing so in the blink of an eye. There's a principle here that we need to be aware of. Water will always follow the path of least resistance. Always. Every time. When a river floods its banks, when a river floods its banks, it's going to do so where it's the least amount of resistance. And once the flood has begun, it's a torrent. Well, our enemy, the adversary, is going to tempt us at the place where we are most weak. And what will be identified for us very generally 
in what Eve saw, what Eve heard, and what Eve desired in her heart is going to be consistent for you and I today. Although the individual specifics may be very different, the principles are going to be the same. So this is an introduction to what we're going to explore now as we go through the remainder of this section 1 through 7. But I didn't feel like we could go through the narrative without understanding at least a little bit more about the angels, about the fallen angel Lucifer, about what it is they generally do and how they are now going to do the opposite because of Lucifer being cast out and then the battle that is going to be fought as a result of the fall. I want you to think about this. Had you and I been in the Garden of Eden, we would have done the exact same thing. Even after the fall, God restores, God redeems, God reconciles, but the road is much, much more difficult. And so as they think about the specifics of the curse... It wouldn't make sense for Adam to go to the most thorn-infested part of land to try to grow food, right? That wouldn't make any sense at all. But that's, in effect, what we do when we don't camp out in the truth of God's Word and yet entertain the false narrative that comes from our adversary to follow our eyes and what we hear and the desires of our heart. And that hard road becomes much, much more difficult when we give ourselves over to the very thing God is saving us from. Thinking about this model of the tabernacle, this place where Adam and Eve would meet with God, He creates that for you and I today through the presence of the Holy Spirit, right there all the time. And rather than turning to, how often do we run from that which God provides for us? to give to us our very best from Him.